Welcome to Citizen Science, stories of science we can do together. Coming to you from SciStarter's virtual world headquarters. This episode is all birds. We'll hear from Caitlin Potter at Woodpecker Cavity Cam. What goes on in the magical world of, of woodpecker cavities? Dr. Brooke Bateman and Kathy Dale at Audubon Climate Watch. I think it's just a really excellent opportunity for people to do something about climate change and also become that local expert and translate like this is how climate change is affecting us here in this location. And Mary Lou lopez Fretz at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology Project Celebrate Urban Birds. Our goal is to include those missing voices excluded from the sciences and, and include those perspectives. And we have like people participating in this project from all backgrounds. How does this make you feel? Relaxed? Sleepy? Thrilled? Awake and alive? In the 1980s, I'd awaken each morning to this sound, not because I lived in a meadow, but because my radio alarm was tuned to WGBH in Boston. Every morning at 7 a.m., classical DJ Robert J. Lertzema would begin his show with five glorious minutes of uninterrupted birdsong. What better way to wake up and greet the day? For many people, birds form a primal connection with nature and with the ebb and flow of time itself. The arrival of spring, the fall migration and onset of winter, and the symphonic declaration of a new day. In today's podcast, we'll hear from researchers working on three different projects, all of which need your help in conducting bird-related research. The first is Woodpecker Cavity Cam, and we have with us Caitlin Potter at the University of Minnesota's Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve. All right. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for having me here today. So this sounds like a really cool project, Woodpecker Cavity Cam. Could you tell us a bit about it? Absolutely. So our project um, focuses on red-headed woodpeckers, which are a really interesting and charismatic bird species um, that's found across a lot of North America, but used to have this stronghold in the upper Midwest. Over the last 40, 50 years or so, they've undergone a pretty dramatic population decline in the upper Midwest. Um, on the order of 67 or so percent um, across the whole population, we've seen numbers wow. drop. And in Minnesota, where our project is housed, that decline has been even greater. We've lost, we think, about 95 percent of the population of redheaded woodpeckers in Minnesota since 1970. Huh. Um, and. And for many folks in Minnesota, this is a bird that they grew up with, that they have a strong personal connection to. And so a number of organizations, including the one where I work, Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve, which is part of the University of Minnesota, we and many other folks in the area are trying to understand just the basic life history of these birds, the role that they play on the landscape, what they need to survive. And the hope is that by kind of putting together some of these basic science pieces, we can help bring this species back. Okay. And so where does the cam come in? (laughs) Yeah. So redheaded woodpeckers are what are called 
primary cavity nesters. They make their own home in trees. Um, and these cavities become a really important resource for a lot of other species on the landscapes where they live. Mm -hmm. um, species that can't make their own cavities. Okay. And so we've set up these cameras, these remotely triggered trail cameras, looking at the entrance to a, a number of these cavities. And every time something goes in or out, a little video clip is taken. And we rely on volunteers and, and folks from all over the world to help us go through the tens of thousands of videos generated by these cameras and help us figure out who's using the cavities, how redheaded woodpeckers react to other species coming and going in their areas and kind of what goes on in the magical world of, of woodpecker cavities. Oh, okay. So, so if you're, um, if you sign up for this, you, do you get some like little tutorial that shows you how to do it? And then how does it, how does it work? Yeah, so this project, um, the Woodpecker Cavity Cam project, is hosted on a platform called Zooniverse. Um, many SciStarter projects are on Zooniverse. It's yeah. a great clearinghouse for especially these sorts of trail cam projects. When you go on, you will get a little tutorial, and you'll have the choice to pick one of several different tasks. So the very first task is, is one for folks that are just interested in everything but don't necessarily have a lot of bird or other animal identification experience, you just look through videos and say, yes, there's wildlife in this video or no, there's not. Then, oh, because sometimes there's just like a branch or something. Absolutely. Or something okay. A branch, some blowing leaves. Um, that first question helps us separate the pictures or the videos that have animals from those that don't. And luckily, most of the videos do have animals. Um, so it's, it's pretty fun. You get to see a lot, but you don't have to have any specific expertise. Then all of those videos that someone or two or three or 10 people say has an animal in it um, go into another workflow that we call cavity visitors. And there you're tasked with actually identifying two species, in most cases, the animals that you see. So you watch these videos and you say, ooh, I see a flying squirrel. We get a lot of flying squirrels really? in these oh, cavities. Cool. <laughs> Fascinating. Things we didn't know because we're not out there in the middle of the night when some of these species are active. Or you might see... We've got mink and fisher, some of the weasel wow. species that live in our area, climbing up the trees and sticking their heads in these cavities. Wait, um, so wait, do they live in there or are they trying to eat the woodpeckers or, or what, what's the deal? So hard to say. This is one of the things we're trying to learn with this sort of project. The holes that the woodpeckers make um, for their entrances are too small for something as big as a fisher to stick its whole body in, uh, but they can sure stick their nose in. Um, things like fisher and raccoons will also try and stick their arm in and try and get at eggs or nestlings that are down in the nest. Um, but we are also seeing that after redheads leave their nest um, at the end of the season or sometimes during the season for various reasons, other species will come and expand that doorway oh. and then it can become a home for some of these larger critters. Oh, wow. But then the woodpeckers can't use it anymore, right? Because it's... So they got to go make a new home somewhere else. Oh. Um, but, but they leave behind this incredible resource for some of these other larger animals. And this is sort of an aside, but this is kind of a reason why it's good to leave dead trees standing and not just say, oh, that's just a dead tree, get rid of it. 
that's exactly one of the one of the main lessons from a species like redheaded woodpeckers. Our little logo for that is save the snag. Save the um, snag. <laughs> those snag dead is. trees. A snag is a standing dead tree, and what we try and encourage people to do is, as long as it's not going to fall in a way that's going to hurt property or human life, to leave them because they are an incredible resource for a whole range of plants, animals, fungi, you name it, it probably uses a snag. They become apartment buildings and food pantries and the whole nine yards. Huh. Okay. And um, how long has this been going and have you learned anything so far from this? Yeah, we've been studying redheaded woodpeckers at Cedar Creek since 2008. Um, it's a really cool project that was actually started by community members and has now grown into an academic research project headed up by Dr. Elena West, who's an ornithologist um, running the, the scientific side of things. We just put those cameras in recently, though. Um, the cameras went in, I believe, in 2019. Um, and we just started having this interface available to the public um, in the last year and a half. Okay. Um, so it's definitely been a pandemic project yeah, for us. Perfect. <laughs> and a really great opportunity for folks, especially when they're stuck at home or stuck in the middle of a Minnesota winter, as we still seem to be, despite the fact that it's April, um, to, to see some wildlife, see some living things. It's It's been really nice. Mm -hmm. We're learning a lot, too. So we're up to, I think, 29 different species that we've documented on these cameras. Mm -hmm. um, we're learning a lot about redheaded woodpeckers as a species as well. So the third step of our project after folks have said, is there an animal or not? And what kind of animal there is? The videos that get identified as having redheaded woodpeckers specifically in them, then get passed to another series of tasks that people who are really into redheads specifically can help us with, where we're asking people to identify band color. Many of our redheads have individually identifiable color bands on them. Um, Wait, color and, bands? And, you mean yeah, like little bracelets. Oh, that have been put on. That oh, have been gotcha. put on. Oh, so okay. we're able to then pull data about which parent is going and feeding babies in the nest, which parent is incubating eggs, which parent is responsible for fighting off the flying squirrels that come and try and get in the nest in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. or fighting off some of these larger mammals as well. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're learning a lot about how woodpeckers make space and and interact with other species on the landscape and how they go about their day-to-day -day life. As I'm sure many of your listeners know, birds can be really challenging to observe. They're small generally, they're fast, they disappear into the treetops. And so these cameras are providing some really valuable insight about what this species does and how we might protect it moving forward. Wow, that is so cool. Now, how are you as far as volunteers? Do you need more? Do you have more than you can handle? Or what's the deal? We always need more volunteers, okay. <laughs> Bob. It's a great question. Um, one of the, the great and challenging things about trail camera projects is that they continue to generate data even when no one is there actually in person on the ground. Um, so we do have volunteers on site who go out and collect cards from these cameras on a regular basis. Um, and so we're always somewhere in the process of uploading more videos for people to look at. Um, Depending on 
when exactly you sign in, um, you might only have videos of redheaded woodpeckers to look at, or you might have videos that have other species in it, kind of depending on where we are in the project life cycle. But mm -hmm. there's pretty much always something to do and something really enjoyable and really valuable for science. Wow. And someone, it doesn't matter where you are, right? You don't have to be in the upper Midwest or even in the United States, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Anywhere that has an internet connection mm -hmm. um, can join this project. And we've been finding it's a great opportunity for folks to just learn about Minnesota as well. Mm -hmm. um, folks that maybe live in other parts of the country where redheaded woodpeckers are still common get a chance to learn about some of the issues that are facing the species in the Midwest. Folks who live overseas, we do have quite a big volunteer contingent in Europe, um, get a chance to to be excited about some of the things that maybe us Americans aren't excited about, like raccoons right. and gray squirrels. Um, and so it's really Exotic. this great opportunity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the deer that walks by under the camera down, you know, 20 feet below that passes by. We see that and we're like, oh, it's another white-tailed deer. Right. But someone who isn't used to seeing that gets really excited. And that's a fun way to build build global community. Great. Okay, well, is there anything else you'd like to share that uh, that we haven't touched on? so far? No, I don't think so. <laughs> it's it's a really fun project. So I would just encourage anyone who's interested in birds or Minnesota or oak savanna ecosystems, which is the habitat that this species lives in, mm -hmm. to check out the project. Classify a few videos. Get excited with us. We'd love to see you on our chat boards. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Caitlin. Anytime. Thank you so much for having us on. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Now earlier, I alluded to how birds connect us to the ebb and flow of time, and that ties in directly with this next project, Audubon Climate Watch. Climate change is shifting our seasons in ways that have large and noticeable effects on wildlife by changing the timing of migrations and nesting, and of the natural resources like food and rain that maintain healthy, balanced ecosystems. By participating in Audubon Climate Watch, you can help scientists study climate change and its effects. And we have with us project founder Dr. Brooke Bateman and director of science technology Kathy Dale. Hey, Brooke and Kathy, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. So this project sort of brings birds and climate change together. Uh, could you explain that for us, Dr. Bateman, how the two relate? Yeah, happy to. Uh, so in 2019, we put our a report that show that two-thirds of birds in North America are at risk um, of extinction, potentially, or large amounts of range loss due to climate change. And so we really wanted to understand how birds are responding to climate change um, currently as we're already experiencing climate change. And so we created Climate Watch in 2016 uh, when we still had an understanding of how birds were responding to climate change from our 2014 report to see if birds are, in fact, shifting uh, across the landscape as we anticipated they would be based on our climate change models. And so we really wanted to hypothesis test that climate change was causing birds to change where they occur and shift their ranges because of climate change. Okay. And, and Kathy, is this project something that um, everyone can participate in or just the most hardcore bird watchers or, or, or what is it? Uh, yes, everyone can participate. Of course, it's important that you love birds and that you're willing to learn to identify at least one or more of our target species that we're studying. So that is that is a requirement. Um, we have intentionally started this program with 
12 species that are pretty easy to identify. So, uh, but it is open to everyone. People can either participate on their own or they can participate through a local coordinator that will help guide them through the process of what one must do to participate. Okay. And are these birds, they'll be identifying uh, widespread or are, are people in different areas likely to see just some of them? Yeah, so the, um, for the most part, the birds are widespread, but we do have different target species for different locations. And so um, you will see that we have eastern bluebird, but we also have mountain and western bluebird. So uh, we, we try to encompass species that range across large parts of the country, but we do have the, the pairs um, that sort of occur in the west and the east. Um, and so we also have painted bunting for some of our southern uh, areas, uh, American goldfinch. We're, we're trying to sort of um, identify species that are more widespread, but yeah, we do have species that represent um, all parts of the country. And there, and these birds are particularly uh, good indicators of climate change. That's how they were selected too? Yeah, so we chose species that do have uh, a certain amount of change expected in their range based on climate change models and how we expect their range might shift as temperatures and um, pre precipitation factors change with climate change. Uh, so some of the species are vulnerable to climate change, meaning that we do anticipate them to have a lot of range loss, but some of our species like eastern bluebird might potentially have some range expansion moving into new areas that might become newly suitable to climate change. So we're, we're, again, we want to make sure that we're looking at species that are going to have some amount of change with climate change, um, but for the most part, most of them will potentially be affected uh, in a negative way by climate change. Okay. And Kathy, so, okay, I want to get involved. How do I do it? How I go online and sign up and what happens? Yeah. So people can Google Audubon Climate Watch and they'll, they'll get to the website and there are a number of materials that are available on the website. We do have a particular link that says, are you new to Climate Watch? That will kind of walk you through the science behind the program, as well as, uh, of course, signing up to receive emails uh, because the emails we send out are periodic reminders to people about when to schedule um, going out to do the surveys. Uh, we also provide a lot of printable materials um, through the website, so self-print, uh, things they can read online. And we do offer free webinars, usually leading up to the uh, survey periods. We also have recordings of previous webinars. We have a popular uh, Climate Watch for Beginners webinar that people can listen to, to to learn what's involved. And you said there's a period. So so when does this happen? It's only a certain time of the year? Yeah, there are two times a year. So we want to study what the birds are doing in the winter as well as what the target species are doing during their breeding season. So the Climate Watch occurs January 15th to February 15th in the winter and then uh, May 15th to June 15th for the breeding season. Okay. And Brooke, have you learned things from this already? Have there been studies uh, or is this so new that it's just beginning to come in? We have learned things and we already have a peer review publication on the first couple of years of the study. Uh, and what we found is that birds are shifting their ranges the way that our climate change predictions have shown and that they are shifting and moving into these areas that are becoming newly suitable and changing where they occur based on the changes in climate. So it's, it's really interesting to see that we're already, after only a few years, able to understand that birds are already changing um, and, and tracking along with climate changes the way we expected. Huh. Have there been any surprises? Anything unusual? 
Um, no surprises so far. We're still trying to build uh, data for all the target species. I think that's one of the things. We had enough data for our bluebird species and for our white-breasted nuthatch, but for the other target species, we really need more, more people getting involved so that we can have more information for, for those species. But um, for the most part, what, what we're seeing is that these birds are, are changing where they're occurring. Okay. And uh, for either of you, um, anything else you'd like to share, uh, things I haven't asked about? I think uh, one of the things I want to uh, make make sure that um, is clear is that this is this is a program that's both you know sort of national, regional, and local all at the same time, right? So, um, you know, we're we're working to make materials and resources available to volunteers, but the volunteers themselves are the ones that you know love the birds, study the birds, know know where to go to see the birds, and so local expertise about where the birds might, you know, what their habitat is like and where they're typically found or where they might be found, uh, found in, the, in the future <laughs> based on changing habitat. Those are the kinds of things that become part of this program as well. So, you know, these are local stories. We have uh, people in Iowa that have been noticing prior to this program the expansion of eastern bluebird into their areas. And so now with this program, they're actually studying that in real time, essentially. So these are things that have been going on lo locally and, and now we can knit them together as regional stories as well as you know range-wide stories for, about the birds. Hmm, great. Yeah, and I think for, like from a scientific perspective, it's, it's a really interesting program because climate change happens at these big, broad scales, but we really need people locally to sort of to see what's going on with the birds in their, their area. And it, it's a way to sort of translate this big abstract concept of climate change to what's happening locally to the birds in your backyard. And that's why birds really, are, we say at Audubon, birds tell us how climate change is happening because they're so in, like tied to their environment, they're really an indicator of what's happening. And so for me as a scientist, I could go out and collect data on birds in my backyard, but it's not enough to piece together that big picture. We need people across the whole country and beyond to really start collecting these data so that we can see, in fact, like how these birds are responding. So I think it's just a really excellent opportunity for people to get involved, to do something about climate change, and also become that local expert and say, translate, like, this is how climate change is affecting us here in this location. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. One reason birds connect so many people to nature is their ubiquity. Even in the heart of the largest cities, you'll find pigeons, gulls, starlings, sparrows, even peregrine falcons turning skyscrapers into their own sheer cliff dwellings. Celebrate Urban Birds is a project run out of Cornell University's Laboratory of Ornithology and is designed specifically to appeal to city dwellers. Joining us is Mary Lou Lopez-Fretz. She's project assistant at Cornell's Center for Engagement in Science and Nature. So Mary Lou, could you describe Celebrate Urban Birds for us? Well, Celebrate Urban Birds is a bilingual, inclusive, and equity-based community science project that serves audiences that are not represented in the sciences, birding or conservation, or even citizen science. Oh, I love that, because so many of these projects are... You know, you have to really know your stuff. You have to be like a bird expert to even get started in them. So I'm so happy that, that you guys are doing something for, you know, for regular people. Well, for this one, you know, you don't need to know anything about birds. That, that's the beauty of it. 
you know, our goal is to include those missing voices uh, excluded from the sciences and, and include those perspectives. And we have like people participating in, the, in this project for, from all backgrounds. That's great. So if I wanted to join, how do I do it? How do I get started? Uh, you go to our website, celebrateurbanbirds.org, and there you can download the materials. And they are bilingual. You can download them in Spanish and, or English. Uh, the, the kit includes uh, identification posters with our 16 focal species. Okay. And these are like birds that are most commonly seen in, in the U.S., and we have other kids like for Puerto Rico and we have other kids uh, for some Mexico, uh, Venezuela and other areas uh, in Peru. And, and what kind of birds? Well, the 16 species are the rock pigeon, like birds like the American robin, the brown-headed cowbird, the American crow, um, uh, morning dove, and you have like a mallard, like peregrine falcon, uh, you know, you. you birds that you are most likely to see or not see in, in rural urban areas. Um, and then you first, you know, learn how to identify them. Then uh, you pick a time and a place to watch the birds and you stick to it. You, you select an area that is about uh, the size of half of a basketball court, if you play the sports, <laughs> about 50, 50 feet by 50 feet. And, and then you're going to watch for 10 minutes. And only 10 minutes, uh, you might think that, oh, I, I mean, what if I watch like for 30 minutes would be better or for less? No, we, we want to make it uniform uh, so we can have like the, the, the data, you know, uh, we have it there for the same for, for everyone. And then we're going to also ask you to repeat the observation at least two more times, so a total of three times within a month. Then uh, once you repeat it, you just go and share, share that data with us. Uh, you can do that online or, or send it. Okay. And uh, binoculars are not needed. Uh, you use your eyes and ears and you just watch what's in front of you. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, you don't yeah. need any special equipment. You don't need, no. you don't even really need to go, you know, out in the woods anywhere. You can just do it wherever you are, right? Yeah, that's the beauty. You can do it. You can choose uh, uh, any area, parking lot, or mm -hmm. you can choose a, a wooded area or a park or just like your backyard, front yard, a anywhere that you might want to, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. you're interested in, in learning about. Cool. And from your website, it looks like in addition to this sort of scripted citizen science data collection protocol, you're now also getting into community science where people in the community kind of decide what questions they'd like answered, right? Yes. With some communities, we are just working together and just exploring uh, the materials that make sense to them. Wow. And, and um, our... I was going to say, and, and are those, uh, I saw that you have these mini grant programs, are those related to these where they'll do something in particular in their neighborhood and maybe there's a grant available to help them do something special? Well, yes. Uh, well, uh, that, that's one of our other efforts. Like we have oh, okay. like the kit is like this, this is the introductory one. And then uh, the other uh, effort is... Uh, the co-creation of materials and community projects focus on arts and culture. 
and you can see some of the samples of the work we've done on our website and see some of the samples of what we have co-developed uh, with other communities. Then the other effort that you were mentioning is the, the mini grants. And uh, we had mini grants all along, but now we name them the Equity Birds and Culture Mini Grants from Celebrate Urban Birds. Mm -hmm. And these mini grants focus on promoting events that center justice, equity, and diversity and inclusion in birthing and ornithology. And we emphasize the culture and art, like that's uh, kind of our mm -hmm. trademark, <laughs> elevating. Yeah, no, that's what makes this different than a lot of the other uh, citizen science and community science projects, um, is, is the emphasis on inclusion and bringing new people in. Do you have any stories um, about, um, you know, individuals that weren't really interested in science but came to it through maybe the arts or culture and then became more and more involved in the science? No, I, I have tons, but then I will be rambling here forever. <laughs> well, just one or two. No, just some, like I, I had a, I, actually I had a conversation with one of our uh, mini grant uh, awardees uh, from last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, they were awarded, it was a, a group of two mothers mm -hmm. in a remote area uh, in, in Chile. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they don't have many advantages. And the students, um, some of them have disabilities. And these two mothers like have a group uh, for other children and they do uh, art, art therapy. Mm -hmm. So they were awarded the mini grant and they did the bird observations and, you know, they, they started uh, exploring their area. Uh, and all of a sudden they said that the kids discovered like uh, hummingbirds that they were uh, having nectar from a particular shrub with oh, flowers. Right. And they got super excited to the point that now they want to plant more of those trees. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> And then they, 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 from that project, they, now they want to do uh, all this gardening mm -hmm. uh, for the birds and to enjoy the outdoors. And some of them, they, they make drawings uh, from their experiences. And, and the mother was super happy and she was telling me how, how that really impacted their kids. Yeah, and now they're sort of experts now because they've done it. And I bet other people in the area will say, oh, what are you doing? And then they'll get other people involved and, and the kids will get other kids involved. Maybe. Oh, yes, that is happening. Great. Well, thanks so much. I, I'm very excited. Again, I think this is the sort of project we really need to get more people sort of in the pipeline to do citizen science. And I'm really happy that, that you guys are focusing on this. Yeah, we're focusing. So so yeah, thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, we're focusing on community science and, and in inclusion of all voices is, is super important and essential to, to what we do. Great. Well, thanks for sharing Celebrate Urban Births and just thanks for being with us. Thank you, Bob. Well, that's all for this episode. We hope you'll share this podcast with your science and nature-loving friends. On our next show, we'll be learning a bit about one of our country's early citizen scientists, Ben Franklin. Until then, I'm Bob Hershon. Thanks for listening. podcast is brought to you each month by SciStarter, where you'll find thousands, yes, thousands of citizen science projects, events, and tools. 
It's all at SciStarter.org. That's S-C-I-S-T-A-R-T-E-R.org. SciStarter's founder is Darlene Cavalier. And thanks so much to you, the listener and citizen scientist, for getting involved and making a difference. If you have any ideas that you want to share with us and any things you want to hear on this podcast, get in touch with us at info at SciStarter.org. Once again, our email address is info at SciStarter.org. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.